All right, let's open up our Bibles once again to the book of 1 Samuel as we find ourselves here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 29. You'll notice chapter 29, it's a very short uh, chapter, one of the shortest ones in the book, only 11 verses long. Now, there's some great lessons, though, in these, in these 11 verses. We, you know, we, we are living, it seems to me, in an hour of church history when we look around the, the church world and we see Christian leaders are just dropping like flies. I mean, it, it, doesn't it seem almost every week that just, you know, another, another guy has, has fallen, embezzled money from the church or had multiple affairs with women in the congregation or messing with kids or being an abusive idiot or some such thing. And, and it just, it's just all around us. And we're going to see these two guys that we have before us. We've, we've, got, we've got two guys in crisis, right? We've got King, King Saul, and then we've got his replacement, King David. And they're both headed towards a crisis. Now, one's going to survive and the other one's not. And the difference is that one of these guys recognizes that at the end of the day, they are completely and totally dependent of, upon the Lord. And the sooner that we learn that lesson, the sooner that we learn that without the preserving force of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, we are nothing. You know, we, we come to the Lord and we've, we've got this zeal, we've got this energy, we got a few Bible studies under our belt. We begin to think that we're the smartest people, the most spiritual people around, and we're just ready to argue at a drop of a hat. We'll just argue with everybody. I, I remember how so full of myself I was in those early years of my Christian experience. I just loved to debate, loved to argue theology, and now I've come to a point in my life, I'm just kind of done arguing. I'm kind of done uh, fighting. And I find that the older I get in Christ, the, the simpler my theology becomes. You know, my theology isn't any deeper than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I have learned over the years that I'm not kept by my determination. I'm not kept by, you know, my my strength, but I'm kept uh, by the Lord. And, you know, David in Psalm 16, he said a prayer that should be found frequently on our lips as well. In verse one, preserve me, O God, for in you uh, I put my trust. That should be a prayer that we pray every single morning. Lord, you've got to preserve me. Don't leave me to my own devices. If you leave me alone, I'll figure out a way to destroy everything you want to do in, in my life. Now, as we're looking at Saul and David, the difference is, is that Saul was, was this narcissistic individual. It, now we're going to see, now David, this has been a long stretch. It's been about a year and a half, right? Year and a half ago, David said, I know that Saul is going to kill me. I know that my days are numbered. I've got to take my life into my own hands. He stops praying. He stops writing Psalms. He heads over into Philistine territory. He starts living a lie. He's been living a lie for a year and a half. But God is going to bring him back. God is faithful to bring us back. And God is going to bring conviction. And, and what saves David is that he was a, a man uh, of conviction. Alan, Alan Redpath, he said, when we really, 
I say really with threefold emphasis, come to the end of ourselves. We are at the threshold of a new world of discovery and adventure in the will and the purpose of God. But it's all based upon uh, coming to the end of ourselves. I'm sure that we all know people that they have been, they have been on a descent from the first day we met them. And they just continue to go down. And you wonder how, how long are they going to keep on this descending uh, path that they're on before they hit bottom? And, and I'm here to tell you, there are people, there is no bottom. They have no bottom. And they are going to keep tumbling until their final hour. And this is what we see in Saul. There was no bottom in this man's life. This guy had convinced himself that everything that was wrong in his life was the responsibility of others, that he was not the one responsible. Now, what we have to understand is that David, morally speaking, David's going to be the new king, but David was not an upgrade, morally speaking. He stole a man's wife and he had the man killed now again I'm thinking on the list of things not to do this week that's got to be near the top of the list right it doesn't get any worse than that but he was an upgrade when it came to his heart that he was one who could feel conviction he was one who could feel the weight of his sin and he could turn to the Lord now we're going to see David he's been away from the Lord for a while He's going he's gonna to come back to the Lord. Now, he's not going to come back in this short chapter. The next time we get together in chapter 30, we're going to see, see the man of God returning to sanity. But he was a guy who could admit, Lord, I am wrong, and I need you to fix whatever is broken in my heart. And listen to me. If you're, if you're this personality, that it's got to be everybody else's fault, you you got to pray that God would deliver you from that. You've got to pray that you would be delivered or it will uh, just destroy you. I remember years ago, I, I went to the hospital to see, the, see this guy and um, he, he had a, a severe alcohol problem. And uh, the night before, uh, he had decided, he was blitzed and he decided that he was going to break into the back of a semi-trailer. It was in the winter, it was snowy and icy. He crawls up on the back of that semi-trailer to break in. I don't know why. And uh, he slips and falls. He breaks his neck. Literally, he breaks his neck. But he's too drunk to know. And so he uh, goes home. And uh, his wife has just, you know, kind of had it uh, with him. And uh, he tells her that, well, I tried to break into this trailer and now I've hurt my neck. She took, I don't remember what the kitchen appliance was, a blender, a toaster, you know, a can of something, and she beat him up one side and down the other. Then she called the cops and told the cops that, you know, he was trying to break into the semi-trailers down there. And so they arrest him. And so in the morning, he sobers up. There's something wrong with my neck. Take him to the hospital. So I walk into, the, walk into this room. And I mean, this guy, he is in bad shape, right? Got all this stuff around his neck and his head. And I mean, all this swelling going on in his face. And I said, brother, you've got a drinking problem. And he said to me, my wife 
is the one that's got the problem with my drinking. And I, I thought, oh, brother. And he ended up just sort of destroying his whole life. And that, that's the story of Saul. And so the sooner that we can develop a sensitivity to our own flaws and our own weaknesses, the healthier and the more prosperous of a life uh, we're going to be able to live. Now, let's let's look at at verse one. It, It begins to set this scene up for us. And it says, then the Philistines, they gathered together all of their armies at Aphek and the Israelites encamp by the fountain that was in uh, Jezreel. So notice that uh, all of their armies, it, it would seem that they are aware of the fact that Saul is uh, turning into a, a crazy person, that his psychosis is getting worse. So they're no doubt hearing these stories and they're probably thinking to themselves, this is an opportunity while the king is out of his mind Uh, Let's just have one more push into Israel. Maybe we can destroy them so effectively that we're going to be able to to take over. So there is a major troop movement that takes place here. So what we're being told is that they've come now out of the Southwest with all of their armies. All five of these city-states have joined together. And we know from the last time we were together that there they eventually get to Shunem. And this becomes now the battle of Mount Gilboa. Now, what Saul does is that Saul has positioned all of his men on the slopes of Gilboa. Now, this is what Mount Gilboa looks like today. We look at this and we think, well, that's not really a mountain. You know, that's, that's more of a hill. This is another shot from a, another perspective. But he puts his men on the side. They, they got the high ground. Puts his men on the rocky slopes of Gilboa. Because you remember that we read back in chapter 13 that the Philistines were in possession of a large inventory uh, of chariots. And chariots in that day, they were essentially a, a, a battle tank. And so it would appear that what Saul is trying to do is to neutralize a military advantage that the Philistines had. In fact, we're told the military chariots of the Philistines are similar to those of the Egyptians. Both have six spoke wheels and are drawn by two horses. The Philistine chariots functioned as a mobile infantry unit. The charioteers, they engaged in hand-to-hand combat after the initial chariot uh, charge had stunned the enemy. So it would seem that their tactic was they would run these things through the front lines of the infantry and then they would hop out and they would do battle and so Saul is thinking all right here's what we're going to do let's get on the side of this hill they're not going to be able to use their chariots there and it's going to certainly give us some kind of uh, an advantage here and uh, so David now remember David is with the Philistines David is marching with these guys and uh, he's in this mess because of his lies because of his unbelief You ever find yourself in that kind of situation where you've been lying, 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 you haven't been trusting, you haven't been praying, you haven't been drawn near to the Lord, and the more lies you tell, the farther into that corner you're getting shoved. And so here is David, his back is up against it, he's with the Philistine army, he's getting ready to go into battle against the the very people that he is supposed to be the king of, I mean, you talk about being in a horrible situation, and yet 
God is faithful. And this is what we have to remember. Uh, You remember that the Apostle Paul tells us that even when we are without faith, God remains faithful. God is true, God is kind, God is merciful, and so God is working in the man's life, even though the man has gotten himself in deep. Notice what happens in verse two. And the lords of the Philistines, they passed in review by the hundreds and by the thousands, all right, the the chieftains, they're kind of checking out the troops before they give that final charge. And notice, there's thousands of guys here. This is a major military operation. But David and his men, they passed in review at the rear of Achish. You remember the king of Gath, this Philistine king, said to David, hey, you're my bodyguard. And I'm going to keep you behind. Nobody's going to sneak up on me because you're going to be right behind me. And so at the rear of Achish, and then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of King Saul of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years. And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. Achish, you're an idiot. You're believing the lies that David is telling you. And you can imagine David, what he's got to be thinking now, surrounded by thousands of Philistine soldiers. And now the princes are saying, hey, what's he doing here? And now Achish, he's, he's standing up for these guys. But notice, but the princes, they were angry with him. How can you be such an idiot, a fool with him? So the princes of the Philistines, they said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. Do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he, be, could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads Uh, of these men. And then notice they go on to say that this is the guy that they were singing about. He's killed his thousands and so forth. What better way for him to get back into the good graces of the offended Israelite king than for this guy to pretend that he's with us and then in the heat of the battle, turn against us and then swing the battle into the favor of the Israelites. We can't believe you're so foolish that you're going to let this guy uh, come in. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here, a couple of interesting points. First thing I want you to notice is what did they call David? They said he is our adversary. Literally, what they are saying is that he is our Satan. This is the word Satan in, in the Hebrew. And what are they accusing him of doing? They're accusing him of initially appearing to be an ally. Initially appearing to be, hey, this is just what we need, only to later on knife us in in the back. I like what uh, John Davis and John Whitcomb say say here, uh, Whitcomb say here, the adversary, as described in this context, would be one who would make out to be an ally, but at a crucial time would turn and bring disaster. This is precisely 
the Apostle Paul's characterization of Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, he's going to appear as an angel of light. He's going to appear as your buddy. He's going to appear that this is just what I need, only to discover when it is too late that you've made a horrible choice, and this thing is going to come back, and, uh, and it's, going to, it's going to bite you. Again, there is a way that seems right to a man, and we've all fallen prey to this. There, there's, there's been times in our lives we thought, I know what the Bible says, but it certainly seems that if we would do this, that we would have a better outcome. And initially, it appears to be the right thing, but then only later to discover, oh, what a horrible choice I have made. Look, if you dance with the devil, you're going to have to pay the band before the night is over. And this is what uh, they were afraid that they would end up doing with David. We cannot let this guy be a part of our party. Now, the second thing that I want you to notice is the wisdom of the plurality of leadership. Now, the principle that we see throughout the book of Acts is that whenever uh, we would find Paul establishing a church, he would never leave the church with an elder, singular, but rather he would always use the plural. He would leave every church under the watchful eye of elders, plural, that there is to be a plurality of leaders. The more eyes that you have on a situation, the greater the likelihood, if there's something wrong in that situation, somebody is going to see. Now, notice what we have here. We got a king, and he has taken David's lies hook, line, and sinker. I mean, David has sold King Achish a bill of goods. But these other guys, they're not hoodwinked. These other guys, they see clearly what is going on. This dude is not to be trusted. Why are you making him a part of this invasion? And they were correct. David's heart was not for the Philistines. They smelled a rat. And indeed, there was a rat there in the group. And it was the multiplicity of leaders. And this is why when you find a church that is either led by a single strong man or a single family, the chances are in that environment, you're going to find abuse. You're going to find manipulation going on. A, a congregation is going to be kept safe when you have multiple spiritual men that are looking at uh, what's going on in the congregation, whether it's morally or financially. Uh, I remember years ago, we, um, we, we were so desperate. We were in Leo, and we were so desperate for a building. And at that time, the anchor room, they're on Stellhorn, and Lehmeyer came available. And so we thought, well, maybe, maybe that's what God has for us. And so you know, we went and we looked at it and we got all excited and we said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to buy this building. I remember we met on a Saturday afternoon and uh, all of the elders were there and we decided, yeah, let's, let's give them uh, what, what they're asking for that building. And uh, some of you know Brad Whelan. Brad was one of the elders at that time. And Brad said to us, you know, guys, look, if, if you want to buy it, go ahead and buy it. But I, I just, I got to tell you that I'm just really uncomfortable uh, about this situation. 
And we say, ah, no, I mean, if you don't, we believe that the, the ways of the Lord are peaceable. And so we're always looking for the peace of God to, to be guiding us. And if you don't have peace, brother, uh, we'll wait until you do have peace. And of course, then the beauty college swept in there and, and bought it, you know. But that was in 08. And you know what happened to the economy in 08. And we took a huge hit financially. I think for the next two or three years, um, our, our income dropped like 40%. And if we would have purchased that building, that big mortgage, every time I see Brad, I'm like, oh, thank you, Brad. Right? I mean, he, he saved us. And that's, that's why you want a multiplicity of spiritual men involved in, in leading any kind of congregation. Uh, Alexander Strzok, who wrote the book, literally wrote the book on biblical eldership, he said, by definition, the elder structure of a government is a collective form of leadership in which each elder shares equally the position, the authority, and the responsibility uh, of the office. So these guys, they had multiple leaders, and they sniffed it out, and they shut it down right away. Well, now, now notice what happens, right? In verse 6, now Achish is going to be very apologetic with David. Achish called David and said unto him, Surely, now isn't this interesting, as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming, oh, if you only knew, dude, if you only knew how many times you've been lied to, right? But he's, he's just buying the lies of David. Uh, with me, uh, in the army is good in my sight. For to this day, I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming. Nevertheless, uh, the Lord's uh, do not favor you. Now, notice he uses that interesting term. Notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? So this is the covenant name of Israel. This is, this is um, you know, Jehovah, if you will. Uh, some would pronounce it uh, Jehovah. And we think, well, that, that's strange that this pagan, pagan guy would be using this covenant name. Uh, but it's, it's interesting in the um, uh, ESV study Bible, it has this note. It seems strange that Achish, the Philistine ruler, would say, as the Lord lives, yet to polytheistic people, th those that believe in many gods, to make an oath in the name of gods other than the gods they normally serve is not unthinkable. So this Philistine king may well have sworn to David by the God uh, that David uh, worship, right? So he's just, he's just kind of letting David down easy. Hey, I don't, I don't have a problem with you. I don't have a problem with your God. But, you know, it's these, it's these princes, right? They're, they're the bad guys. So, uh, look, no, no hard feelings. Don't blame me. Uh, so you better, you better just go home because I'm telling you, these guys really mean business and they don't want you to be a part of this thing. So go back to uh, Ziglag uh, where you, you came from. Now, I think that we have a little bit of uh, what I would call overacting on the part of David here. Notice in verse eight, and so David said to Achish, now the guy was in a corner. The guy is trapped, right? And God has graciously given him an out, right? And so he's, he's gonna play this up. He says, he said to Achish, but what have I done? 
and to this day, uh, what, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? It's like shut up and get out of there. You know, you can imagine what the Lord is, is thinking at, at this point. And uh, so Achish is like, yeah, I know I know, but I'm, I'm telling you, Dave, uh, they don't want you. And, uh, and so just, just get, get, get out of here. Very interesting that the very guys that will remove Saul are the very guys that rescued David, right? The princes, they're going to take Saul out. And it's the princes that really have rescued David, gotten him out of that corner of compromise that his lies got him into. And so we close with verse 11. And David and his men, they rose up early uh, to depart in the morning and they returned to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to uh, Jezreel. Again, this is just such a beautiful example of the Lord his mercy, not, not his grace, right? Now, what, what is grace? Grace is when we get something that we don't deserve, right? We didn't deserve to become the sons and daughters of God, but he extended his grace. And so now we're in the family of God because of his grace. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. I mean, here is David for the last year and a half, he hasn't been trusting God. He hasn't been praying. He hasn't been living the life that God has told him to live. He's been telling lies. He's been living a compromised life. And yet God, in his mercy, reaches down to this man. I love what Arthur Pink says about this. Through his unbelief and self-will, David found himself in a sore dilemma. Seeking help from the ungodly, he had placed himself under the obligation of the king of Gath, pretending to be the friend of the Philistines and the enemy of his own people, was called upon by Achish to employ his man, men upon the attack which was planned against Israel. Then it was that the Lord interposed and preserved the object of his love from falling into much graver evil how he, he now graciously made a way of escape lest his poor erring child would be tempted above that which he was able. And I close with Alan Redpath. He said, I believe in the perseverance of the saints because I believe in the perseverance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in our story is a man reduced to an appalling plight because he has compromised. But it is thrilling to know that no matter how far that man has gone, the blood of his redemption goes further. No matter how far his wanderings have taken him from God, he is never, never beyond the reach of our wonderful Lord. Now, what we're going to see is that David repents. What we're going to see next time we're together is that David calls out, to the Lord. Oh God, what a mess I have made. If David thinks he's in a rough place right now, three days from now, 
He's going to show up there at, at Ziklag and he's going to realize there is a bigger mess that is there. In fact, his life is even going to be threatened by his own men. And in the point, at the point of that pressure and that stress, he calls out to the Lord, oh Lord, what a mess, what a mess I am in. And as he turns to the Lord, the Lord is faithful to forgive. The Lord is faithful to work. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're far away from the Lord tonight. Maybe you've been living the last year and a half in a way that you shouldn't be living. Please hear me. You are an erring child of God. Just turn to him. Just turn. Lord, look at the mess that I have made. Oh, Father, help me. So I think that as we go to prayer tonight, we need to be praying that uh, uh, the Lord would be keeping us. Oh, Lord, you preserve me. And Father, we ask that as we leave here this evening that, Lord, would you help us to walk humbly before you, love mercy, do justly, just walk before you with humble hearts. Help us, Father, to be sensitive to the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Lord, search our hearts. Father, our hearts are desperately wicked. Our hearts are just so deceitful. Lord, may we keep just very short accounts with the conviction of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, never to wander into that path that King Saul was on. Lord, keep us on that path of David who just looked to you that you would preserve. Oh, Father, in this wicked hour that we live in, would you, by your grace and mercy, keep your dear saints? For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.